Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Pullmaps Middle East Political Science Podcast, our, our program dedicated to spotlighting and featuring all the exciting work which is happening in the field of Middle East political science. Today, we're going to be joined by Alexander Thurston of the University of Cincinnati. He'll be discussing his new book, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups. We'll also be joined by Michael Robbins, director of the Air Barometer, who will be discussing recent polling work that's been done on themes including uh, the normalization uh, of Arab states with Israel and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll also be joined by Christiana Pereira, a uh, Stanford PhD student and a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton, and we'll be discussing her recent article on uh, the provision of electricity in post-occupation uh, Baghdad. Welcome to the program. Hi, welcome back to the Pullmaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Michael Robbins, who's the director of the Arab Barometer. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Well, to start off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the Arab Barometer for those who aren't familiar, because I think it's a really important uh, contribution to uh, the work a lot of us are doing in the field. That's uh, Thank you so much. It's uh, The Arab Barometer, we uh, have been doing public opinion surveys across the Middle East and North Africa for the last 15 years. We started in 2006, so a bit before the Arab uprisings, um, and have some data from that time. And then we've done five waves and are currently in the middle of our sixth wave since then. So we field about every two to three years, tracking the views of ordinary citizens on economic issues, political issues, social issues, religious issues, and a, a wide range of surveys. So what we try and do is nationally representative surveys um, that, that uh, measure how people feel about these, these topics. And, uh, and we've done it so far in 15 countries to date. Uh, we've done uh, more than 75,000 interviews across the region. Um, and really our goals are, to, are threefold. One is to, uh, to you know, first document public opinion to understand uh, you know, how uh, people feel about the region, provide data for, uh, for researchers working on these topics. Second, it's to build institutional capacity. So we spent a huge amount of time working with our partners in the region to increase their capacity to public opinion surveys. And so a lot of, our, uh, of the people we work with on the ground and countries are actually now doing work uh, for other academics. So certainly it's something that's I think been a benefit as we've worked with them to try and help increase their capacity to do research in what is a very difficult region. And then third, we really want to disseminate the findings um, to share the results. So there are a lot of myths about how Arab publics think and a lot of things that people think, even at times academics think, that have proved not to be true when you've actually had data to, to examine and to understand how, how ordinary citizens think and feel about their world. So uh, we have been doing that both in uh, academic circles, in policy circles, so working to try and you know, provide data to policymakers, then finally, and I think most importantly, to provide data to people in the Middle East. So there aren't a lot of public opinion surveys that exist. Um, you know, and, and times we actually are the only uh, survey that I'm aware of that's actually publicly available in some of the countries where we survey. So we at least provide a base mark, a benchmark for governments and for you know, people in the region, CSOs, uh, NGOs, other types of groups to actually have data to work on to try and improve the lives of people. And so we, we've really worked to try and improve our questionnaire so that we have a number of of questions that can be used to help people in the region. So really we, uh, we're trying to you know, benefit the region as much as we can, but also provide uh, a rigorous and you know, uh, valid academic data set that uh, researchers can use to better understand the region. Yeah, that's one thing that, that, uh, that some graduate students and other people might not realize is that all of the data is publicly available. 
um, and uh, you can actually work with raw data. Um, and I've seen a lot of good articles and, uh, and books that have, that have done that already. So that, that's a real contribution. So we're, we're really pleased. We, I think at this point, have about uh, 250 or, or more academic articles that have been published peer-reviewed that use our data. And we're also, I should say, happy to always you know, talk to graduate students. Some of our great ideas have come from graduate students in terms of topics we should cover and things that they're working on. So we can't always take questions. Um, you know, it is actually uh, difficult to, to raise funds all the time, but we certainly want to know what people are working on so we can try and incorporate those types of topics um, into uh, the work that we do. Because at the end of the day, the goal of the project is to be used and to make the data public, as you say. And uh, that's all at uh, the website, uh, arabarometer.org, for those, of, those, for those who don't know. Um, so let's talk about your most recent uh, uh, survey. Uh, you, you just came out with a uh, six-country survey about uh, Arab attitudes towards normalization with Israel uh, in the wake of the Abraham Accords. So tell us a little bit about the survey, where you did the survey, and what you found. Sure. So it's, it's actually been a bit of a challenge since COVID. Uh, we always do our surveys face-to-face -face in a respondent's place of residence, but at this point, given the health concerns for both our, uh, for both our teams and for the respondents, uh, we haven't found it safe or you know, able to, to be able to do that in a traditional manner. So we've had to switch to phone surveys. And so phone surveys have uh, certain challenges. There's also potentially some benefits that we're exploring right now and working on the methodology behind that. But so at this point, what we're doing is phone surveys, um, nationally representative. So we, we have a random digit dial of mobile phones across uh, the country. And in most of the countries where we survey, they have about a 90% penetration rate for mobile phones. So it is most of the population. Um, and so what we've done is surveys currently in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Jordan, and Lebanon. And we've asked about a number of issues, COVID, for instance. But the one, the, one of the recent things that we did is looking at the support for normalization with Israel. So we fielded surveys in October in all these countries asking citizens if they, uh, you know, if they uh, supported or strongly supported the peace treaties uh, between the UAE and Israel and Bahrain and Israel, and to see what attitudes were. And what we found was that there's very, very low support across the, the countries where we surveyed for uh, normalization overall, that in, in all countries except Lebanon, fewer than one in 10 respondents say they either support or strongly support uh, the, these accords. Um, and meanwhile, in Lebanon, it's, it's one in five. So 20% say that they support the, uh, the Abraham Accords. Um, however, there is a huge differentiation by sex. That in this case, about half of Christians in Lebanon say that they favor the Accords compared to 11% or less of all the other sects, the main sects, the Druze, Shia, and Sunni. And so in this case, there is a huge differentiation there between groups in Lebanon, but elsewhere, we, we generally see very, very low support for these Accords. Even in, even in Jordan, which actually has a peace treaty. We do. So that's kind of one of the interesting things that we've seen. And this kind of fits in with some of the data we've collected before from in 2019, that, that really it's obviously a very cold peace. And one of the things that we find is that um, we asked a question, you know, is it good? So kind of before the, the Abraham Accords are signed, is it good that some Arab countries are coordinating their foreign policies with Israel, thinking particularly, particular, particularly of the Gulf countries? And what we found is that in the areas, in the, the countries that, that border Israel, so Egypt and uh, Jordan and others, that, you know, they really see Israel as a huge threat, that they, when asked, you know, what's the biggest threat to your country, they, Israel is, is by far the most common in, that, uh, in the countries that border it. However, those are also the same countries that tend to say that, you know, we really should actually, at a higher level than other countries, say we should start coordinating with Israel to some degree. So Israel is a threat, but it also is something that, you know, has to be dealt with in those bordering countries. And so... Although there's not really wide support for Israel in, in a case like Jordan or in Egypt, you know, both countries that do have peace treaties amongst ordinary citizens, there's a sense that there must be some type of dealing with Israel to a higher extent than, say, Moroccans or, or uh, mm -hmm. 
Tunisians. And so in this case, uh, it is a very cold piece. Uh, there's not really support for these uh, type of, of initiatives, but, um, but there is a sense that Israel must be dealt with in some way. Now, um, you mentioned that you surveyed a, a number of issues. Uh, were there any interesting findings on COVID that uh, you're able to share? Sure. So it is, I think, one of the really interesting questions we've had is we've seen a huge decline in trust in government uh, across the region, really since uh, right after the Arab uprisings. And so since 2013, we've seen trust in government fall by about 17 points, 20 points across the region on average. And one of the questions we have is if COVID may be a chance to, you know, potentially change this, you know, governments have not managed to solve the economic issues and many of the social uh, and political challenges facing the region. But this is a case for the governments, you know, particularly, say, Morocco and, and Tunisia and Algeria, others uh, in the region as well, stepped up and really actually did, uh, took some fairly strong um, steps to try and stop the spread of COVID. And so one of the things that we're seeing is that really support for government, and in some ways trust in government are actually pretty correlated with attitudes about how the government's done on COVID. So in a sense, if the government can protect ordinary citizens, you know, and protect their livelihoods compared to say, you know, Western uh, European countries like Spain, Italy, France, numbers, the United States as well, that there may be a sense that, you know, there is a rebuilding of trust or a, a stepping stone to, to do that for the future. Um, we actually saw that in the, the first surveys we did in early fall, and that seems to be declining as, as you know, the, the situation in Jordan, there was a very strict lockdown early on. That's fallen, uh, you know, the, the numbers have gone up fairly dramatically. And so we have seen a decline in and trust in government since then, and you know, performance in government in Jordan since then, but there's still a fairly strong correlation. So it is an interesting uh, sense that citizens seem to be not necessarily evaluating as directly on economic issues, but are really looking through the lens of COVID to think about how their government is doing and performing. That's really interesting. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. It's always great to, to talk with you. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined today by Christiana Pereira. She's a recent PhD from Stanford University and currently a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton's Department of Near East Studies. Uh, Christiana, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Christiana's just published a new article in the Journal of Peace Research. It's available online first. It's called Power Politics, Armed Non-State Actors and the Capture of Public Electricity in Post-Invasion Baghdad. So Christiana, tell us about the article. Sure. Uh, so a lot of my work, including uh, this paper, tries to understand how macro level political changes affect distributive outcomes at a very micro or local level. So in other words, how are these defining political events shaping how people experience everyday politics, uh, especially when it comes to accessing basic services, uh, some of which without which life is very difficult or impossible. And this is really challenging to study in places where conflict or state collapse has, has made data collection difficult. But those are actually precisely the cases in which we really want to understand how patterns of service delivery are changing. So in many cases, whether someone has access to a service like electricity can have life or death consequences. So in this paper, I look at how electricity was provided across different neighborhoods of Baghdad in the aftermath of the US invasion in 2003. And I look specifically at how one non-state actor, the Sadrist movement, uh, began providing electricity provision to its supporters during this time, uh, a time when electricity provision when, was really uneven and scarce across the entire country. And what I argue is that they did so, at least in part, 
by actually capturing control of the state electricity infrastructure that had already existed prior to the invasion, prior to 2003. Uh, so using remote sensing data, what's sometimes referred to as the nighttime lights data, uh, and other information on the solderists that was collected on the ground uh, at the time, I, I show that neighborhoods in Baghdad, of course, support for the movement experienced better quality electricity in these immediate years following the invasion. Uh, and in the conclusion of the paper, I sort of speculate that this is in part what helped to boost this movement's popularity uh, and enable them to eventually gain power within the state in Iraq as well. Yeah, the failures of electricity were one of the uh, the biggest ongoing complaints uh, that Iraqis had during the entire occupation period. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about these methods. This is kind of uh, we, we've seen this being done in other contexts. The the night the, the the nighttime data. Tell us a little bit about that and how you were able to do that and uh, what that contributes to the study of um, of this kind of phenomenon. Yeah. So in terms of data, you know, I had no experience working with spatial data or nighttime lights data. This was, um, I'll, I'll say, the first one of the first papers that I ever worked on early on in my PhD. So this was what really introduced me into using those methods. Uh, and I relied on the nighttime lights data because it was incredibly local level and it's collected regularly over time. And that's actually pretty rare, particularly in Middle Eastern contexts. And, and so in that sense, I think it's really interesting and, and worth using. Uh, it also so has a number of weaknesses, uh, including that it often proxies for things like population density, which I try to account for in the paper. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of its main strengths is that it can also be collected totally remotely, meaning that even in uh, the most uh, sort of severe of conflict contexts, um, it can still be gathered, which other papers, as you said, on Iraq and Syria have noted. So I think of this paper as a sort of different empirical test of a phenomena that was already quite well documented qualitatively on the ground. Um, I'll say a lot of my research is very qualitative and fieldwork based. So it was a, a little weird at first to write an article that did not include that type of work that I had done. But I also think these methods do have some utility. They show that you can empirically investigate local level differences and outcomes that we really care about uh, in places where quantitative data collection may have been disrupted. And what I, I hope people take away from this is not that everybody should just be using the nighttime lights data, but that we need to use a really wide variety of empirical evidence to piece together what's happened in the aftermath of conflicts. So the remote sensing data here wouldn't really make sense without other local level data collected on the ground, which I use, um, without the accounts of people who saw what was happening at that time and without you know, theoretical intuitions derived from other places like uh, Lebanon, et cetera. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I like that because the uh, basically it's very similar to the questions you're asking in your dissertation about local service provision and the like, and you can use multiple methods and come at it from different angles. And I think that's that's the way a, a lot of the field is moving. So what? how then do you see this in terms of uh, explaining what the Sauterist movement was doing and why they were successful? You, what, what, what were you able to piece together in terms of the trends, in terms of what's happening in solder controlled areas versus areas that are outside of Sauter's control? Yeah, so um, one of, I think, just to kind of take it less, uh, make it less specifically about the Sauterists and more about sort of general trends in, in conflict context, I think one of these core questions in comparative politics is what happens in the aftermath of state collapse. Uh, there's this large literature on order without law and rebel governance, the form that orders takes when states are no longer providing it. But I think there are also a lot of gray areas in conflict and post-conflict context. 
texts. The state may have collapsed, but some aspects of it remain functional. Certain infrastructural legacies may endure. And that's really what happened in the case of Iraq with its electricity system. Certain aspects of governance were continuing, but the state was diminished in its capacity to monopolize control at the expense of new political forces. I think that's a more accurate way of thinking about a lot of these Middle Eastern cases, including you know, more recently Syria, Yemen, and Libya. So after the US invasion of Iraq, there was infrastructural damage to the electricity grid, but it remained somewhat intact and actually particularly in Baghdad was somewhat repaired pretty quickly. And it was still managed somewhat by the state. But this lack of monopoly on violence during the post-invasion period allowed new political actors uh, to emerge and to compete for uh, control of this infrastructure. And the Sauterist movement was one of them and they did so apparently rather well um, specifically through using their armed capacity to capture control of these local substations at the neighborhood level and then redirect electricity to their areas of core support. And then you, and then you see that playing out then in terms of outcomes on the ground. Exactly. So that's when the nighttime lights data comes yeah. in and I sort of look and say... You've got, that, you've got a real nice map there with the um, kind of the, the location of the Sauter's offices with the nighttime data. Yeah, that data was collected uh, by Melanie Kamet at Harvard in collaboration with Crisis Group, uh, sort of at the time in these years following the invasion. So again, sort of highlighting, you know, this nighttime lights data wouldn't make a whole lot of sense without, yeah. you know, people actually on the ground who were looking and seeing where this movement was building offices, where it was building strength. So scholars, so scholars who are then looking at these situations of state collapse, what should they take away from your article in terms of how they can utilize these types of methods uh, going forward? Right, so substantively, I think this paper provides a, a new account of how non-state actors provide services in order to gain power. Um, I think it provides an account of how um, non-state movements that emerge in the aftermath of conflict um, can actually rely on the sort of remnants of the state left over from this sort of pre-conflict or conflict era period uh, to then sort of uh, shore up support among their supporters. Um, some questions that I was interested in exploring that I didn't just because of data availability and the fact that this is, you know, it's not a book, it's a paper, right. sort of like what the consequences of this type of service delivery by the Sauterist movement what were the consequences uh, for public opinion in these areas? You know, how did people feel about this? Um, and, you know, I speculate in the conclusion of this paper that this contributed to a sort of equilibrium of state, weak state weakness, right? That this empowered the Sauterist movement at the expense of the state, and it allowed them to sort of um, critique the state and then also simultaneously take power within it. And so I would really like to see, and I think there is a lot of work going on um, looking at places that are more recently emerging from conflict um, or still in it, like, like I said, Syria, um, you know, Yemen, Libya, um, sort of trying to understand what impact these local level political forces are having both on service delivery and then on how people perceive those movements and the state. So, so I hope that this paper can, can help contribute to that literature moving forward. Great. We've been speaking with Christiana Pereira of Stanford University, currently a postdoc at Princeton, about her new article, Power Politics, uh, online only at the Journal of Peace Research. Uh, Christiana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was great talking with you.
This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. Welcome back to the new books section of our show. We're joined today by Alexander Thurston of the University of Cincinnati, author of the new book, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Alex, uh, thanks for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. Really glad so to be here. Tell, us about, tell us about this book. Um, uh, why did you decide to write it? What do you think the major contribution of the book is going to be? Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, I've been I've been closely following events in this region for, you know, a, a decade or more at this point and and the, you know, the the Northern Malian Rebellion of 2012 and other events just raised all sorts of questions and and complexities about how to understand the the role of jihadists in this region. Um and then too, you know, there's there's been some you know, broader conversations about how to study jihadists, how, how to think about them, how to think about uh, the sources for studying jihadists. And so, yeah, I try to get at, at you know, a, a regional history in a particular part of the world, but also at questions of, of approach. It, re- it really is um, a very interesting book in the, in the sense that you're engaging uh, debates about, uh, about uh, jihadist groups um, kind of globally, um, but you also give incredibly rich local histories. And uh, I think to me, that was both a theoretical uh, statement, but also like a, an example of how one might do this kind of research. So tell us a little, a little bit about that, how your, the way that you balance these global debates with uh, the local and the context. I think there's been kind of a tension or, or a split sometimes between, you know, what might be called jihadi studies and, and then area studies. And so, you know, a split between analysts who tend to focus on the the propaganda materials or the leaked documents that that you know al-qaeda or islamic state or or their local affiliates produce on the one hand and then area studies specialists on the other and the the book in a way is is an attempt to uh to bridge those gaps to bring to bring the two perspectives together and and then also to to read the jihadist sources maybe a bit more critically than than Mm -hmm. they're often read you know and and to try to you know of course show the the huge impact that you know jihadists have had on security dynamics and on politics but but also to show that you know they they are not necessarily uh 10 feet tall you know that, that they lie that they contradict themselves and each other that they have interpersonal rivalries and and that that there's a that they're human beings in, in very messy ways i think the, the 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 exemplary statement of the book is simply that you have to take jihadists seriously as political actors not as like a virus or a pathology but as groups that are active on the ground engaged in complex politics yeah, and I really try to show, you know, the 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 diversity and the complexity of the relationships that surround them, and and yeah, and that 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 idea of jihadists as a as a virus or something. I mean, you know, embedded in that is the idea that they're just from somewhere else, or that they're not really from somewhere. And when you look at, you know, Northwest Africa, and when you look at other parts of the world too, oftentimes the the jihadists are from at least roughly the the places where they're fighting. And so there's there's something really complicated going on there that yeah that can't be reduced to this metaphor of a of a virus. In fact, you point out that uh, in, in a lot of cases, field commanders with that local knowledge who are from the area are a lot more successful than the ones who are dropped in from Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and even when an outsider, you know, when an Algerian field commander would come to Mali or something like that, the, the ones who were the most successful often were the ones who, who really put in the time to develop relationships and, and to think in complicated ways about the local environment. And then, you know, that, though, ironically, could make those same field commanders difficult for their own superiors to mm -hmm. control. Yeah, and it's interesting. You, you, you get this very strong sense from your detailed uh, case histories that it's just not the case that uh, bin Laden or Zawahiri are out there, like, you know, controlling these uh, so-called affiliates by remote control. There's a lot more going on there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to, you know, build on work by, you know, Barack Mendelssohn in particular, who, who you know, in his book, The Al-Qaeda Franchise really shows the, yeah, just the, the how fraught some of those relationships are. You know, it's not, I mean, it's not that Bin Laden or Zawahiri don't matter, but things just move so fast on the ground, there, there wouldn't even necessarily be time sometimes for, for these remote figures to, to really weigh in in detail about decision making. There's so, many, there's so many interesting theoretical issues that you raise. I just want to flag a couple of them and, and, and talk them through a little bit. And then I really want to start talking about the cases. Um, so one of the th points that you make is there's this debate uh, about how seriously we should take the religious component of, of these jihadists. Are they just like strategic actors or do they really take seriously these ideas that they, that they avow? So tell us a little bit about your answer to that question because I think it's quite interesting and somewhat unique. Yeah, and this is something that I, I continue to struggle with in general and, and at the level of individual figures. I mean, I, I tried to, I think, find a, you know, middle way in the book between some of the perspectives that are just completely dismissive of the religious component, you know, who, who, who regard, you know, the religious language or the religious talk as, um, you know, a kind of cheap talk as, as just purely instrumental. So I, I tried to, I, you know, and that's not convincing to me because I think, you know, some of these figures have, have demonstrated, I think, that, that they take those ideas seriously, that they're willing to die for, you know, for, for causes. I mean, there, there does seem to be some real evidence, you know, you can't know what's in people's hearts, but there, there seems to be some real evidence that some people really believe the ideas. Um, on the other hand, I think, to, to regard the ideologies or the or the the religious doctrines as a blueprint, I think that's also a mistake. And and so yeah, I, I'm trying to find you know in this book and then in my work in general, this kind of middle ground that says okay yeah, a lot of these people seem to be devout as they define it, but but then they also can can be at one and the same time devout and savvy politically. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good way of thinking about it. Uh, I I generally lean towards the uh, the strategic side, but you make really good points about how seriously they seem to take it and how much they invest in learning and and being immersed in in these religious debates, um, which is way beyond what uh, you would expect from someone who's just cynically, you know, as you said, engaging in cheap talk. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Aisha Ahmed's um, Jihad and Co. and and Thomas Haghammer's volume on jihadi culture. I mean, those those were both, you know, influences on my thinking. I mean, I think both of them in different ways show that that yeah, there is that, that the attention to the ideas, as you said, you know, goes beyond what would be necessary for just strategic reasons. And then, as you point out, like within when you when you really dig into the internal politics of the groups, um, it's the points at which. 
uh, uh, things escalate to becoming an argument over doctrine or creed when things really get out of hand in those groups. Yeah, yeah. And, and even there too, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to decide ultimately because of this issue of, of not knowing what's in people's hearts. I mean, you, you could always make the argument that it's purely strategic. I mean, but, but yeah, it does seem, I mean, those creedal disputes are just so dangerous to organizations and they're dangerous for the civilians surrounding them. I mean, the, the, the violence that these groups can unleash on, on, on themselves and, and then on civilians is, is, can be so, so grim. Yeah. Let me ask you one more kind of like meta point, uh, uh, which is about your decision to focus on the field commanders as kind of the key unit of analysis or level of analysis for making sense of what these uh, these jihadist franchises are doing. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're, you know, the, the region that I work on has influenced me. I mean, you know, the, the Sahara, of course, you know, poses logistical challenges to, to communication and to coordination. And, you know, maybe particularly in that type of environment, um, the, the role of the field commander is, is accentuated because they, they end up being that, you know, man on the spot or whatever who, who makes decisions. But I think some of the dynamics do hold elsewhere you know that, that there's something about that relationship between the field commander and and the fighters that are directly loyal to him you know and it's it's always a him basically um and and the yeah the the role of that field commander as as being the one managing these face-to-face -face relationships that are that are so crucial for the trajectory of different organizations and some of them are more successful than others and more independent than others it's uh yeah. To get at that, you really have to do the kind of uh, really highly contextualized, rich field work. You have to know the countries, not just, um, you know, kind of jihadism. Yeah, yeah. And so this is, yeah, what I'm trying to bring together here. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really great contribution. Let, let's take a, you, you, so the book ranges over uh, multiple countries across North Africa and, and the Sahel. Uh, you, you dig into Algeria, Mali, Mauritania, Libya, um, and it's, it's, it's genuinely fascinating seeing how these all link together. Uh, but why don't we start uh, by talking about Algeria? Um, uh, I think our, our Middle East um, audience uh, will be will be familiar, more familiar with Algeria. Let's talk about the evolution of these jihadist groups in Algeria and then how they spread out across the Sahel. Um, just walk us through it a little bit. Yeah, so you have, you know, I mean, one point that I try to make in the book is, you, you know, you have you have the armed Islamic group or GIA, which in, in many ways is like an eerie sort of forerunner of, of ISIS slash Islamic State and in, in their attitudes and so forth. Um, you know, one of the most hardline groups to ever exist, a, a group that, you know, ended up basically pronouncing takfir against, you know, all of the Algerian population or at least the, the Algerians who didn't support them. Um, but I try to show that even they consisted of multiple strands that came together, you know, returnees from Afghanistan, uh, you know, local hardliners, veterans of, of a previous kind of, you know, proto-insurgency or insurgency in the 1980s in Algeria. Uh, and so they had these kind of plural roots and then they too, you know, fluctuated in terms of their openness to working with other factions that, at a sort of high point in, in 1994, they were actively absorbing other factions, including factions with pretty different ideological perspectives and, and you know, historical roots. Uh, and then that kind of came crashing down, you know, by, by the mid 1990s. You had a particularly kind of 
hardline wing of the movement take control of, of the, you know, the central leadership, the, the, you know, emir position or whatever one wants to call it. And then just sort of undid a lot of that work and, and ended up, you know, fracturing this coalition, unleashing a lot of internal violence and, and prompting some major schisms. Um, and then those yeah. schisms, yeah, resulted in the creation of, of the, the Salafi group for, for preaching and combat or, or GSTC, which eventually became an affiliate of Al-Qaeda called, called Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb or AQIM. And, and that, that's an important point, by the way, the, the way you describe all of these jihadist organizations as, as coalitions, um, not simply these monolithic groups, um, and really looking at, at, at all at the different strands within it, some formal, some less formal, um, and, and using that as a way of kind of explaining, in many cases, their success and their failure or seemingly inexplicable uh, compromises or uh, 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 escalations. Yeah, some of the some of the political science research on you know coalitions within within rebel movements and, and armed groups. I mean, really, yeah, really, um, you know, shaped my thinking. And 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 you know, uh, scholars who make the point that a lot of groups are, you know, coalitions to begin with. So you have you know Paul Stanilan's work on on you know, pre-war networks being so key so key to the formation of wartime movements. And then other you know scholars pointing out that, that even if a group starts off as homogenous, that it can develop these internal cleavages as time goes. And so it ends up looking a bit like a coalition, even if it had a more, you know, single origin, I guess. Yeah, and, then, and again, uh, actually treating these, uh, these jihadist organizations as insurgencies and applying the political science literature just seems like a natural thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And then going back to the earlier question, trying trying to still preserve then an element of like, I mean, this is something I really struggled with in the book. Yeah. You know, to what extent are they, are the jihadists exceptional? I, I want to preserve, I think, a little bit of exceptionalism for them because I, I think there are things that make them distinct. If nothing else, because because they're blacklisted. I think that that, you know, I think that that really matters, that they're, they're you know, it's very hard to bring them to the negotiating table and not just because of their own ideologies but because of their position within the international system as blacklisted but but yeah i mean i think you know at the same time i think they have a lot in common with other insurgencies and that that that's really worth thinking about so the the, the typical story about the gia is that they became so extreme that they alienated uh, algerian society with the uh, the random massacres and the the then kind of the, the extremism um is that basically what you found when you were looking at them yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, yeah, a, a lot of that, you know, was was confirmed for me. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I was really influenced by by um, Jacob Mundy's book about um, imaginative geographies of, of Algerian violence. And, you know, Mundy, Mundy makes a lot of excellent points. I mean, including the um, the sense that in Algeria in the late 90s, there was just a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity and people asking, you know, who's, who's really behind the killing and so forth. And I, I think that's, I mean, that book is a crucial reminder that um, not to make things too neat and pat as we look back on them in, in retrospect, right? And so, you know, one thing I try to do with the GIA specifically is, is to, yeah, to show that it, it, it was maybe not inevitable that it, that it landed in that place, that there were other moments, you know, particularly sort of at its most inclusive around 1994, there were other directions it could have gone. Um, and then to show that, you know, sometimes as we like rehearse the histories of these movements, it's like, oh, this movement was founded in this year, you know, the, 
the GSPC was founded in 1998 or things like that. But, but really, it was a it was a looser kind of process, and that you know different different units were breaking off at different times, and there was a lot of um, improvisation and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the GSPC then, and kind of how it evolves out of out of the GIA, and then um, what leads them then to affiliating with Al Qaeda. Yeah, so they, you know, and and they were a crucial case for me in in terms of my thinking. I mean, they and and you know, to go back to your earlier question about the the field commanders, I mean, I really felt too that that the field commanders were often the driving figures in in splits, right, and and that the GSPC was essentially a, a coalition of dissatisfied field commanders who who had and and here too this this goes to the issue of of how to think about ideology i mean they seem to genuinely have ideological objections and and even you know personal religious horror about the gia leadership's extremism and and violence towards civilians but i think those field commanders who formed the gspc also felt that their lives were directly at threat in some case under threat in some cases and so there were a lot of motivations, um, but yeah. So they ended up, you know, from from you know in stages, even from 1995 on, uh, breaking away and and eventually coalescing as the GSPC, and then having some serious internal debates about how to respond to um, Algerian, you know, amnesty offers, which were not, you know, mostly offered to them, but but which affected them, uh, and then yeah, how to deal with this question of affiliating to Al Qaeda. Um, and so they approached that in stages between about 2003 and, and 2007. Um, yeah. Before we talk about the Al-Qaeda affiliation, though, I want to go back to what you were saying about the, you know, the religious horror and the internal debates. And not to like, take you too far afield, but to what extent can, are these, um, these internal debates um, kind of a precursor of what we see with like, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State um, in later years? How do they compare? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, I really do think, as I said before, it's, it's striking and kind of eerie how much the GSPC, I'm sorry, how much the GIA kind of prefigured, you know, attitudes of, of, you know, that ISIS later came to have. And, and, you know, some of the debates, uh, internal, you know, or, or, you know, Al-Qaeda versus ISIS debates now, the the GIA sometimes comes up and and the Algerian experience sometimes comes up as as a warning that Al-Qaeda will use you know, toward the Islamic State to say, you know, you need to avoid this kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, this, you know, uh, chaos that the GAA fell into. Um, yeah, and so there's, you know, this is a recurring debate among jihadists is how far to go with takfir, right? And and once groups seem to start down the road of declaring everybody an unbeliever, it it then can start to, <clears throat> sorry, it can start to to cascade and and to and to reinforce its own logic to the point where everybody outside the group becomes an unbeliever. You know, factions of the Islamic State have done that, and and factions of Boko Haram have done that, and it it's really a dead end in some ways. Whereas the GSPC was like, will be a little bit softer on on the takfir, but a lot tougher on actually attacking government targets. Yeah, yeah, and and then I mean, sort of the. The irony for them is that the, you know, and here I'm confirming, I think, a lot of what what earlier, you know, analysts have said, but but that the picture in Algeria had had shifted a lot and that the civilian population was, you know, fatigued with war, was was open to some of the solutions that, you know, Bouteflika and other Algerian leaders were proposing 
and that the GSPC found, you know, relatively minimal purchase after that within Algeria, despite trying to soften their approach and, and win back popular support. So when, let's go off from there then. So at what point then do they begin going regional and uh, getting out into the Sato countries? That's, that's, a, that's a tricky question to pin down. I mean, you know, definitely, I, I, think, I think definitely already within the 90s, within the mid 90s that, you know, Mokhtar Mokhtar, this, this key character in the book, um, you know, major field commander that already in, in GIA days and then in GSPC days, you know, was, was a Saharan figure, you know, operating in, in southern Algeria, of course, but, but probably already at that time, you know, with some connections into northern Mali and, and you know, maybe Mauritania and Niger as well. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely by, you know, from, from 2000, there's, there's an account of, of Belmokhtar sort of escorting an emissary from Al-Qaeda through Niger and into Mali and into, you know, eventually into Algeria. So definitely by the turn of the millennium, there was, there was a real you know, Saharan presence already. But yeah, then, you know, there was a mass kidnapping of, of European tourists in southern Algeria in 2003. And, and then, you know, over the course of about the next decade after that, there was just more and more implantation in, in you know, the Sahara and the Sahel. It's really interesting the way you describe the, the you know, the permeable borders. Uh, you, you talk about them quite differently from the way kind of the failed state literature usually talks about them. Yeah, I, you know, and I think, I mean, there's been a lot of exciting research and so forth about, um, you know, alternatively governed spaces rather than ungoverned spaces. And yeah, you know, work by, um, you know, Judith Scheel or, you know, other scholars of, of borderlands in the region or elsewhere, you know, pointing out that um, these regions are not empty of people. And, and just because the state doesn't have control or doesn't have full control, that that doesn't mean that there aren't political orders in those regions. And mm-hmm. yeah, this I think proved to be a really complicated question for, for you know, what became AQIM and for other groups is how to engage with, with the many different communities that, that are in this era. And, and sometimes they did a more effective job than others. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, one, I mean, one sort of basic dynamic seems to be that you know, there are pre-existing rivalries and tensions within the region and sometimes aligning themselves with one political faction or one, you know, tribal or ethnic faction could mean that they inevitably then lined up against somebody else and, and you know, made, made an enemy inadvertently or, or at least had tension with another group. Um, so it was not, you know, and again, going back to that, that virus metaphor, right? I mean, the metaphor is the idea that the virus comes in and starts infecting the whole population, but really they end up I think making more political trade-offs. Right. Um, let's go back to the uh, the Al Qaeda uh, affiliation. Um, so, why was that chosen, and how does it affect the, their behavior and and kind of their presence? Yeah. So, you know, there there seems to have been at least some relationship between Algerian jihadists and, and Al Qaeda. I mean, a going back to the time when you know of, of the sort of late stages of of the. Afghan jihad or whatever one wants to call it, you know, there were definitely Algerians who were present in the 1980s and early 1990s and, and who had contact with bin Laden. Um, there seems to have been some contact between the GIA and, and bin Laden, although some accounts depict bin Laden as, as really recoiling in a kind of horror mm-hmm. from, from the GIA. Um, then you have this process of, of the GSPC affiliating to Al-Qaeda, you know, especially from maybe we could say 2000 on. 
uh, and then pledging allegiance, you know, fully and formally in 2006 and, and changing their name to AQIM in 2007. Um, the effects of that, though, I think are, are hard to assess. I mean, you know, in, in 2007, after the name change, you had some major, major attacks in Algeria, right? You know, suicide bombings, um, an attack on a you know, UN building and, and so forth. Um, there seems to have been, at least in the short term, an effort to really demonstrate, you know, that this was a new chapter and, and so forth. And maybe even to kind of inspire a new generation of, of fighters and hardliners. Mm-hmm. Um, in practice, though, I think there were tensions up and down the chain and, and that not everybody was always on the same page, that the leadership of AQIM was not always on the same page as bin Laden and then later Zawahiri, that the field commanders of AQIM weren't always on the same page as the leadership, you know, and, and so forth. I mean, on down the chain, just a lot of messiness at times. So we've been uh, mostly talking about Algeria, um, but uh, you also talk in, in great detail about Mali, Mauritania, Libya. Um, pick any of those cases and kind of tell us just a little bit about it and kind of what lessons you drew from it, just so people can get a sense of the scope of the book. I mean, one one central character in the book, I mean, maybe, I, I guess I would say the most fascinating character to me is, character to me is, is Yara Ghali, who's, who's now, you know, the, basically the main jihadist in the Sahara and definitely the main jihadist within Mali. Uh, somebody who, you know, had a long, long career before coming to Al-Qaeda, you know, so somebody who, who was a, a leader of a more or less, you know, separatist rebellion among the Tuareg in, in Northern Mali in 1990, who led another rebellion in 2006. Um, who has been a, you know, a, a high-ranking diplomat, Malian diplomat in Saudi Arabia, who has all these, you know, complicated relationships. And he, I mean, you know, he really brings up some of these dilemmas we were talking about earlier. I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, one could regard him as, as a completely cynical actor, right? Who, you know, a chameleon who takes on whatever he sees as most expedient, you know, and is maybe with Al-Qaeda now because he sees it as most expedient. On the other hand, you know, I, I met, uh, you know, five or six people as part of the research who who know him quite well, you know, and, and who mm-hmm. said, you know, that they thought he had undergone a genuine religious conversion. Um, so he, to me, kind of, yeah, embodies this sense that that somebody can be both, that they can be, uh, you know, ideologically committed, but still remain quite politically savvy um, and, and assessing the extent of his relationships, you know, including up to the present time in Mali is very complicated. I mean, he he may retain you know, serious relationships with, with um, you know, the main ex-rebel bloc in Northern Mali that's a signatory to the, to the peace accord, you know, and so, yeah, this, this you know, his, his career and his, you know, web of relationships, yeah, really puts front and center for me the, the political nature of the jihadist project. So I guess last question, um, you know, so for, for those who are like especially focused on actually trying to deal with the jihadist threat and the security issues uh, involved. What's like the biggest main takeaway points from the book that uh, you wish they would understand so they would stop making mistakes and maybe get it right? I think, you know, I, I mean, even a few months ago, I probably would have said, you know, something about dialogue with jihadist groups that, you know, to me, I, and I continue to think this to a great extent, you know, that, that, because again, I see them as political actors, that that dialogue with them is worth exploring. But I, I think what's been on my mind more recently has been, 
the 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 abuses by security forces mm. and and the kinds of collective punishment that security forces you know meet out in in you know in this region and elsewhere and and for me i've really come to think of this as as a a feature of of the war on terror or whatever it's called now that that collective punishment is is sort of woven into it um and and that abuses against civilian or civilians are woven into it and so i think you know that that ending those abuses is is important uh and and that those abuse you know abuses against civilians undercut the possibility of any kind of you know trust or counterinsurgency or anything like that but i think ending those abuses requires more than just you know, human rights trainings that the U.S. government would provide to foreign militaries or, you know, or, or anything like that. I think it requires kind of a rethinking of the whole, you know, securitized paradigm that we've been in since since 2001. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that to really sort of deal with these groups would would require, you know, a, a real shift in perspective. And, and then I think also, you know, a, a sense that um, that 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 some level of, of, you know, existence for them may have to be tolerated, you know, mm-hmm. that, that the effort to, to completely wipe them out becomes in itself a, a, a propellant of more, more violence. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, we've been speaking with Alex Thurston at the University of Cincinnati, author of the new book, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups from Cambridge University Press. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.